podcast is created by Laura Jackson and Jonathan Stevens of Local Jurisdiction Consulting. The episode starts now. All right. All right. And let's do a countdown together. Okay. Three, Three, two, two, one. Action. All right. Hi, guys. This is Laura Jackson. And this is Jonathan Stevens. It is 3.41 p.m. Eastern Time on April 11th, 2020. It is a Saturday. It is the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter. What's the proper, I, what's the name? Is this just Holy Saturday? It doesn't have a name like Maundy Thursday or Good Friday, does it? The Saturday. Mm-hmm. All right, guys. So, let us talk about what happened this past week. So, the biggest thing was this past Wednesday, Bernie dropped out of the Democratic presidential race, leaving Biden as, I guess, the uncontested Democrat. So, I guess he, is he the nominee? He is the de facto nominee, but he won't. So, it's an interesting question because what normally happens in a case like this is that you only have one serious candidate left. Voter participation drops way, way off. But because there are also congressional primaries and local elections and other things associated with some of these elections, people do still vote. And obviously, people still caucus because they want to participate in their state conventions and things like that. So, what generally happens is after everybody else has dropped out, now the only remaining candidate will get you know, 85, 90% of the vote in the primaries and so that they will quickly accelerate to officially getting a majority of pledged delegates and thus officially becoming the nominee designate. They're not actually the nominee until the party officially nominates them at the convention in this case, which is now planned for August. Well, I think Bernie made that decision based on, he made that decision after Tuesday's primary in Wisconsin, which the Democratic governor, you know, made a push for it to be extended, for it to basically last until June. And the Wisconsin... And be all, all, all by mail, I think, as well. Oh, <clears throat> and the basically the governor of Wisconsin made two attempts. One through the legislature, which is dominated by Republicans because of gerrymandering, they shot him down. Then he simply issued an executive order on Monday, canceling in-person voting. And that, too, was shot down on uh, Monday by the Wisconsin State Supreme Court. There is, in fact, a state Supreme Court seat on the ballot. That was the general election for the state Supreme Court, which was the thing that the parties in Wisconsin actually cared about. And then that went to the United States Supreme Court, emergency appeal and was also rejected there. They What they actually rejected the United States Supreme Court, they even rejected an attempt to say that any absentee ballot collected by a week after the election should still count. And that was shot down too. And so then it's only absentee ballots postmarked by election day. And the, the, the issue here was that because so many absentee ballots were demanded late, they actually, the local uh, electoral offices 
in many cases, did not send out ballots in some cases at all or sent them out very, very late, even to people who applied many weeks ahead of the election. So people who applied to request their absentee ballot fully in due time, many weeks or even a month or two before the election, didn't get a ballot or got one very, very late, mailed it in as quick as they could, and it still didn't get there on time and it will not be counted. And they were offered... I guess the option that, well, you can still go vote in person and the head, the Republican, I can't remember if he's the speaker of the house or the head of the Wisconsin state Senate, but the head of one of the houses of the Wisconsin legislature went out wearing full PPE, including goggles and a face mask and a surgical gown. I mean, he looked like he walked out of an ER and said, Oh, it's fine. It's safe to vote. Everybody could come out and vote. And it, it's worth pointing out that both the United States Supreme Court and the Wisconsin State Supreme Court are both voted remotely on this. So yeah. they themselves regard it as too dangerous to to meet in person, but yet it was okay to force the voters to make the choice between taking the same risks the judges and justices would not and giving up their their right to vote. There's a great article in the New York Times by Linda Greenhouse and it is opinion on the Wisconsin primary the Supreme Court failed us and this was a good excerpt there is barely a hint in the opinion of the turmoil in the country did it not occur to these justices to wonder why they were working at home rather than in their chambers it was left to Justice Ginsburg in her dissenting opinion to point out that the district court was reacting to a grave, rapidly developing public health crisis. Yeah, and there were one of the uh, Democratic members of the Wisconsin State Electoral Board had an editorial, I think in Slate. I'm sorry, I don't have the reference here. But she was criticizing this in the harshest of terms while praising the voters. I think many of us saw pictures of people standing in line holding up cardboard signs and things like that. Uh, in addition to just the general danger in the cities of Green Bay and Milwaukee, I don't know about Madison, maybe Madison too. So those are the three kind of urban areas in Wisconsin where Democrats tend to do well. In Milwaukee, they went from 180 polling places to five because that was as many election work. They had to have the National Guard helping to run the elections because people were too scared. Wow. And so people had to stand in line for six and eight hours to vote. And they had people attempted to stand six feet apart. Most people were wearing masks and so forth. But there is the great likelihood that indeed people contracted the virus. And in fact, the I think it's the Wisconsin State Health Department, I think. Somebody, I can't remember, it might be one of the universities, somebody's tracking to see if we can figure out what kind of infection spreading there was because of the election, which will, which will be good for future appeals to the courts because then they'll have actual evidence of why you shouldn't mm -hmm. do that. But it, it was a debacle. It was a horrible precedent and it was dangerous to the voters. And so, although it wasn't the only factor, it certainly seems that Bernie badly behind in delegates and very unlikely to have any real chance of overtaking on the delegate count decided that he didn't want to be, among other things, the reason why people would have to endure ordeals like that. Mm -hmm. Well, let's move on to the second biggest thing that I think we experienced this week in Virginia, which our governor, Ralph Northam, requests 
that the General Assembly move May local elections to November and June 9th elections to June 23rd. So we'll keep you posted on that front. So you, you kind of called this, Laura, when you pointed out that his original stay-at-home, shutdown, lockdown, whatever you want to call it, order in March extended until a couple of days after the old date for the June elections. So in the governor's original stay-at-home emergency order of a little less than two weeks ago, he explicitly made the end date of that passed the primary election you speculated i think correctly that that was not an accident that he didn't think it was safe to have the election at the normal time and so now they've pushed that primary election to late june and the may general election has been pushed to november which is interesting because that will really change the electorate right these are local elections and in a lot of them they're very low turnout but now they're going to be on the ballot at the exact same time as a presidential election. Mm -hmm. So in many cases that may literally triple or quadruple the turnout and bring a very different electorate. So that's, that's a big difference for the candidates running in those elections. Huge difference. Do mail people (laughs) send your mail. if You're going to be on the ballot in November. Yeah, exactly. Instead of May. Yeah. Yeah. So they're going to have to do that. They're going to compete with the presidential mailers and Internet ads and all those things. But they're also going to have a lot of partisan voters showing up. And so Donald Trump will inevitably become. You just also want to direct those voters in a local election because not all of them are partisan positions and they will not clearly label Democrat or Republican. So, you know, if you're a Democrat or a Republican, You might as well capitalize on that if you'd like, you know, get all the Dems or Republicans that are already going to vote for Trump or Biden to come out and know that you also affiliate with that position at the local level. Right. It's going to make it's going to make local elections about Trump and Biden and whoever most likely amongst local candidates, whoever does a better job of reducing that undervote gap, the gap of the people who vote at the top of the ballot, vote for president, maybe senator, but then they just leave off the lower offices, presumably because they, they feel like they don't know enough about it to cast a ballot. Whoever can do a better job covering up that gap, even even in a county or a town where your party's presidential candidate is only getting, say, low 40s, if you can get most of that vote and your opponent doesn't do the same, you may still win. You may still win. So it definitely changes the strategy because normally a May local elections is nothing else on the ballot. Your office is the only deal and it's a much tinier electorate. It's just mm-hmm. the super duper voters. Just I don't know whether it's better or worse. It's just different. It, uh, maybe it's a little better because it's a bigger electorate will be picking their local leaders. But from a political operative or candidate perspective, it is a totally different election. Mm-hmm. We just recommend that you try to capitalize on the surge of voters there will be. Don't let them forget you. Okay, actually, I will say this was the biggest thing that happened this past week, which this was this was today's news, right, Jonathan? Saturday? Or was this yesterday's um, news? I, I, over the last 12 to 18 hours. I don't know exactly at what point it happened. Okay, guys. The United States is now number one in confirmed COVID deaths. So. And... And cases? No, 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 not cases. Oh, yes, we've been number one in cases for some, of confirmed cases for some time. Now, let's talk about the language there. 
confirmed. <laughs> right. So a, a, as the case is, we're probably, by the time we're uttering this, there have been over 20,000 confirmed deaths, which is horrific. And in no way do we want to minimize that. But ABC News, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and others are all reporting that that number is almost certainly far lower than the actual number of deaths. Because when you see those numbers on those various counters, for example, the Johns Hopkins University coronavirus report or the Worldometer, those are two that a lot of people are looking at. There are others. They're all tallying what governments give them, which is people who were tested positive for the coronavirus and then died. When people are already dead, when they're found by EMTs and so forth, they don't get tested. They don't use up a test on a dead body. They treat it like it could be infected in terms of how they handle it, but they do not test and it just gets booked as a heart attack or, or a breathe or a lung failure or pneumonia or what, possibly. Right, what have you. Yeah. What have you. And most nursing home deaths are playing out this way. For example, in New York City, the New York Times reported that there were, I'm just sort of doing a little mathematical averaging here, but basically there were about, even a week ago, there were about 250 excess in-home deaths every day above what you would normally expect for this time of year, Well, which is almost 10 times normal mm -hmm. now, to be clear. It's not a small excess. So Jonathan, there is this article in USA Today with the headline, U.S. now has more coronavirus deaths than any other country, but the worst of epidemic may not be far off. And this was a slightly optimistic article, but I do think it was misguided. It was basically saying that, oh, we're on track to have 60,000 deaths rather than 100,000 or 200,000 if we continue social distancing. And... I don't, I don't think that article mentioned the undercount that you had mentioned, you know, it, it didn't really take that into consideration and it just kind of, it, it seemed odd to me. Well, the, the, these optimistic articles are coming from two angles. One angle is people who want to convince everybody that social distancing is working, which it is, it is helping. And that's clear from the math. And so that people won't give up on social distancing. The other is coming from the total opposite end of the spectrum. People who still want to downplay this, say it's not as big of a deal and we should just open up the economy and go back to doing what we're doing. And those are mostly people who are in some cases genuinely worried about the economy. In many cases, they're mostly worried about how a bad economy is going to hurt President Trump and the Senate Republicans electorally. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm afraid it's just that simple. And so it, it, it sounds to me like this is maybe more of the former it's not clear that we could have additional other waves. We don't have a good idea how many people are dying and not being counted as coronavirus deaths, but are dying from coronavirus. I guess that's what they're saying. They're saying, oh, we're starting to flatten the curve, but we're starting to flatten the curve in confirmed cases. So it gets back to what we had just. Yeah. Said. And I, I think, look, I mean, in New York and other in a few other places, the hospitals cases have plateaued. Presumably that is a good sign that social distancing is where it's social distancing clearly helped it plateau in Italy. It's plateauing in Spain, but you know, I just have some two Italy, different counterpoints. Italy still has a lot of people dying just because it's plateaued. Doesn't mean it's gone away just because it stopped getting worse. Doesn't mean it's gone mm -hmm. and over. And, and I think the, the, the people are very, so eager for this to be over that they're taking a leveling off as a sign that they can throw a party and you know we may not be able to throw a party until we've got a vaccine a year from now guys i i called it 
the breaking headline that I saw today, which is which is why, you know, maybe that article was optimistic, but it did say, you know, the worst of the epidemic may not be far off. So this headline, though, that I'm talking about is the World Health Organization looks into report of COVID patients testing positive after negative tests. Ooh, that was in The Guardian. Oh, and in New York, you only have 14 days to claim the dead before they're put into mass graves. Hmm. Boy, that's that really was... tough if everybody else in the family's sick. Yeah. Can you claim them by phone? I mean, I, I'm not trying to be a smartass when I say that. Like, I honestly don't know the answer. I don't know how that works. So, guys, that was from News 9, and the headline is, Images show mass burials at New York City Public Cemetery as city shortens deadline for claiming dead. And it's a pretty stark image. It's not quite to the extent of what we've seen in Ecuador and Iran, but it is a giant open trench and the coffins were being stacked at least two, if not three deep and three across. And it was being dug by bulldozers and So I guess like that's that. my problem with that headline. I get that the worst of the epidemic may not be far off and we might be seeing that more often, but I don't I guess I also know it could get so much worse. These articles are also extremely big city, coastal, and especially New York centric. Really what's New York has dominated our national numbers and thank goodness things seem to have stopped getting worse there. But as the governor himself said, it is it is stabilized at a horrifying rate. And and it is horrifying and everybody wants New York to emerge from this suffering. A lot of the media is based in New York. They're particularly sensitive. These are still human beings writing these articles. It's, it's easy to forget that. Is USA Today a little more conservative leaning as well? Mm, no, I don't know about that. I mean, it's kind of, it just, it's it kind of middle of the road. I don't know that it really has a bent. It's certainly not like the Wall Street Journal or the New York Post or something like that, nor is it like the Guardian or something like that on the left. But I think that, that you know, there's going to be a tendency for the national media to want to declare this thing over if New York starts to recover. And that's really dangerous because we know that it is just sort of revving up in rural areas and smaller towns and cities where people have been less apt to take it seriously from the beginning. So you need to listen to your state health board, your governor. You need to figure out what's going on in your area and realize that some of these articles are really about the national situation or frankly, they're really pretty much just about the New York area situation and it may not pertain to your town at all. Mm-hmm. All right, we should have put this part in with our other topics. Well, I think it pivots off of the coronavirus stuff. Mm. So it just kind of brings it back to politics. And this this is something that I saw in The Atlantic by Ron Brownstein. And what it said was that – so we have the, a big battle, including – the Republicans fighting to deny the Postal Service funding that it may need to stay in existence. There's a big battle over expanding or not expanding voting by mail with Trump himself saying quite explicitly he doesn't want more by mail voting because he doesn't think it will be good for him or the Republicans. Of all the states that everybody tends to put on the list as swing states, and I believe herein included was Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, Arizona, North Carolina, Pennsylvania. I think that, I don't think they had New Hampshire in there. That all those states have no excuse absentee by mail. If you want to vote by mail, you can do it. 
Although, you know, all of them you have to request. It's not like Colorado where they just send you a ballot. You have to actively request it. Now, I would add Florida as an important swing state. And Florida does not necessarily have the same rules, or I'm not sure anyway. It wasn't mentioned in the article. But many, if not most, if not almost all of the swing states already have the kind of voting that Trump doesn't want them to have. So that's interesting. Well, and it's, it is interesting because if it benefits, you know, both parties equally or if it benefits both parties at different times in history, it's like, well... Well, I'll say the article says it is not clear from the evidence that it really benefits one party or the other. Well, what I was going to say is that it's not like one party would remove voting practices because it's not like one party has a total majority on the state so it's not like democrats are like no we don't want in mail voting whatever anyway i wonder if there is a connection between no party really having control and a push towards more lax voting laws well i mean right now what's happening is the democrats want to make it easier to vote and republicans want to make it harder because they both think it's going to be good for them but these are most swing states have no excuse. Right, they are. Oh, so they, they, yeah, they already had those laws. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, but I think because they're swing states, I believe there might be a connection to let's have everyone vote because you know that could benefit Democrats in a cycle. It could benefit Republicans in another cycle. So I think both party might be seeing it as oh, like I want everyone to vote because actually in a purple environment. You don't know which way that's going to go. It's not like, oh, there's more Democrats here than Republicans. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's an interesting perspective. I guess I kind of agree, but I think the way to frame it maybe is that at the time those laws were passed, the party in power thought that it was going to help them. Although I know- I get that, but I'm saying- Wisconsin and Minnesota have had those laws for like almost since their founding. They've always, that was part of the states where the progressive movement was big. Some of those laws date back to the late 19th century. Well, I want to see more headlines then about which states have no excuse voting. And it's like, you know, like you said, it could be all Dem states and then the Republicans don't. But it's like, I do think there's a connection to them being swing states. I think the article said there were 28 states that had what would be classed as essentially on-demand mail voting. There were 17 states that had restrictive absentee voting, like Virginia, and there were five states that have all essentially all vote by mail, but you have the option to vote in person. And then California is kind of a hybrid where it's on a county by county basis. So guys, this was an article in The Atlantic by Ronald Brownstein. Hmm, did I pronounce that right? Yeah, I think he usually says his name Ron Brownstein, even though okay, it's Ron. Okay, we'll call him Ron Brownstein. And the headline is, the most important 2020 states already have vote by mail, but the battle over expanding access is only getting started. Anywho, that's all my comment. I was just curious about, you know, if if it truly doesn't benefit anyone, it's like, yeah, let's have everyone hit the polls. And in purple environments, swing states, that makes sense to me. So another thing that I saw was actually a story on Wired.com. Interesting. And it was kind of an analysis trying to say, uh, excuse me, the article was by David Karp. And he was trying to say that the way that Biden gained the nomination was actually similar to the way Trump ran in 2016 in the sense that he basically took advantage of a lot of earned media, free media, meaning getting attention from impeachment. 
Well, that too. Ukraine. But, but I heard about Biden and Hunter true. Biden that's, and that's true. I, I don't Ukraine all of that's a good the point. Fall. That, that's a good point. That isn't. It's interesting. That's a good point. Maybe that did actually help him more than we realized, and we were all worried it was going to. That was hurt the biggest him. earned media I heard about him. That's an interesting point. That that's not actually what the article was referencing, but that's an interesting point that they probably should have ref- thought. Your about. girl didn't read the article, guys. Um, by the way. Not the yet. article was really talking about how Biden was a good candidate, at least on paper, but ran a pretty crappy campaign, didn't raise enough money. They didn't have skilled operations, they didn't have big field operations, and yet he won all these states. And that the reason I, I didn't quite characterize it as just media, it was political momentum, a lot of Democratic elites, but they got that message out through all this media attention. He got so much attention for, you know doing well in South Carolina above all, that that just started this tidal wave. And I don't think that's quite parallel to Trump because Trump had all this crazy media attention for two years leading up to his election. But anyway, that was the point the author was trying to make generally and specifically what I thought was more interesting was he reminded me of something that I hadn't thought about in a long time that in 2004, right, as the Dem- right, either as they were about to have or as they were having their the Democrats were having their national convention to nominate John Kerry, the Bush administration released this big terrorism, orange code orange terrorism alert scary terrorism alert and it really hijacked the media narrative at the time and there were those of us like myself who were democratic operatives or volunteers who thought that the whole thing was just a setup just an attempt to scare voters and to steal media from john Kerry. and at any rate apparently it came out that while that alert was based on real intelligence it wasn't based on current intelligence. nothing had happened at that time to make, they just chose to issue the alert then clearly for political purposes. And so what the author is, the reason I'm hearkening back to that, just to wind this back to Trump and Biden, is that one thing that, that they said is, well, what if the Trump administration were to say, post a warning in the last week of October saying that we fear that there's going to be a resurgent COVID epidemics in Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Detroit, and Milwaukee. Not Florida. Well, so the, you know, in other words, they wouldn't even, no, I, I get right, it. They wouldn't even is, have to lie. They could, not really. They would just have to say, oh, well, we're, we're worried there's a chance. It could be really dangerous in those cities in the next few weeks. Well, they can also be citing what Fauci said here and now in March and April of the wave might come in the fall, sure, blah, sure. blah, blah. Like, and only, so, only release the scary news about mm-hmm. places where they don't want people to vote. Well, say, oh, but rural Pennsylvania, you're fine. We're not worried about but, rural Pennsylvania. And I think... Jonathan, you made a great point that it was based on real but not pertinent information. So, so yeah, not timely. So that'd be like if we're doing all these reports and we're getting increasing data and we're getting into October and we find out that the pandemic is not going to come before the election, but we choose to cite Fauci's quotes from March or something like that. It would be very hard to disprove, or excuse me, it would be very hard to prove unless you got deep into CDC's emails or something. And even then, it might be very difficult to prove that they didn't actually think there was an increased danger in those cities at that time. and although and I could just see it as oh well he's finally being proactive I could see him as being hailed by his base and saying 
you guys always want to bring him down. When he wasn't doing anything, it wasn't good enough. And now that he does it, you know, it's like you people are never satisfied. And it's it's yep. not like that, but I can even see if that strategy was going to go down, their base, his base, would eat it up. Yeah, um, and more importantly, it would only have to scare. You only have to Ukraine. scare a small <laughs> percentage of the people in those cities to tip the outcome in those states. The Democratic votes in those states are heavily concentrated. Oh, my God. In, in narrow geographic areas, whereas the Republican votes are spread across the whole state. So the, I, I thought it was irrelevant. I don't, you know, we can talk endlessly about what you can or can't do about this. Well, Jonathan, I think you have just such interesting insight. So I love you finding those links and educating us about it. So, yeah, I, well, I, I mean, this, this wasn't my original insight by itself. Anyway, this was Mr. Karp's. And I, I fear he could be on to something and that, you know, we'll have to wait until the fall and see. But I, it wouldn't shock me at all if something like that happens. Now, one thing that I think is going to help determine whether it's done or how it's done is what we don't know the results of this Wisconsin election yet. We gotta, I was reading some articles where it was, until next week. and that does kind of tie in with our news at the top of Bernie dropping out. Um, there are some interesting headlines as like, Bernie drops out, but shows massive enthusiasm where it's like, hey, people came out during a pandemic, stood for hours to vote. And one headline I saw was like, Bernie energizes the youth and they come out in droves to vote for him. And it's like, that's a classic tale for Bernie. Um, and I think we'll start to see more of that. But just perusing the headlines and not reading them, I, I saw some things about what the results would mean and so on. The result in that state Supreme Court election is going to matter a lot. If the Democrat won anyway, and perhaps if the Democrat won by a surprising amount, because what actually happened was that people were kind of somewhat scared all across the state, but that the Democratic voters were angered, and so they stood in line anyway. I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying if that turns out to be true. Mm -hmm. If it turns out to be true and the Democrat won anyway, then... On the one hand, of course, supporters of the, those sorts of policies will say, see, it doesn't matter. But the reality is that will be a disincentive for Trump or anybody to try some shenanigans like that in the fall. We shall see. But I thought that the article raised an important warning for mm -hmm. people to consider. All right, guys. I think that was our big news of the week. I just wanted to let you guys know that tax day is now July 15th. So this is from the IRS. Treasury IRS extend filing deadline and federal tax payments regardless of amount owed. Woohoo! So if you owe taxes, don't pay don't, them. Don't don't send it in until much late, closer to July fifteenth. If you're going to get a refund and you want to fill that that you know you can go ahead and do it. But there is absolutely no reason to do it early. And given all of the various rescue and bailout programs that may still happen there's a decent chance although it's not a slam dunk in any way it could be that you're better off filing and having that on record but since they're generally willing to use your 2018 stuff you might want to keep your 2019 stuff in your back pocket and see what the programs are before you decide it may affect exactly what you decide to do you should talk to your accountant this could get really complicated but so i will say though I heard through the grapevine 
that Virginia state taxes are still due. So then I did hear that the Virginia state taxes That's were interesting. On, still on time, which Jonathan, you said interesting. was May 1st. Okay. Yeah, it's not April 1st. So, so just wanted to let you guys know that you could possibly relax on that federal That's... front, but I would look into the state side. So That's interesting. Yeah, I, I did think that was interesting. And unpleasant. <laughs> well, it's difficult because people file their state and federal at the same time for a reason because the two affect each other. Exactly. That's so what that's my neighbor really gonna, was saying. That's he was real, really kind of upset about it. He well, like, it's going to cause people real. Some people it won't be a big problem, but for some people it's going to cause them real problems, mm -hmm. um, potentially myself included. And I don't really know how folks are going to deal with that except as best they can. But it's going to be a real stinker for some people. So I hope that between now and May 15th, I mean, excuse me, and May 1st, they fix it. Yeah, we could get some resolution or some clarity yeah. or yeah. some yeah. direction on that front. Yeah. So, guys, check that out. We will try to check that out, too. Now, Jonathan, since that was kind of disappointing, how about we end on a positive note? Okay. Do you want to tell them? So, we have now Jennifer Carol Foy, delegate from mostly from is there a district all in prince william county or is it a little, bit, a little Stafford? bit Stafford? okay De but she's from delegate from prince william county bottom of nova she is has officially announced that she is running for governor which is probably about the worst kept secret in virginia politics but she is officially announced running for governor and interestingly i don't think anybody else has officially announced we were talking about that so jennifer mcclellan who has been uh, a leader in the state senate for some years mm -hmm. and is a longtime um richmond party luminary she very much seems to be running for governor Everyone believes she is running for governor, but as far as I know, she is not officially announced. Yeah. There's been some talk that Terry McAuliffe will run for another term. Now, I don't know whether he's changed his plans or not, but there's been some talk of that. There's been some talk that Attorney General Mark Herring might do it. I think those are the people that I've Well, what about Justin about. Fairfax? And there, That's true. And there's been some talk that Justin Fairfax, Lieutenant Governor, might do it. So all there's been talk about all these people, but the only person about whom there's been talk who is actually put their chips on the table, said, ante me up and deal me a hand, is Delegate Foy. And I think that's very wise because whenever you can start agreeing, disagreeing, criticizing what Ralph Northam's doing in Virginia and what all the governors are doing across the nation. Because like we said, it's 50 different attempts right now. Each governor is manning their own state and trying to come up with solutions on that front. So I think it's very wise for the candidates that are going to be running for governor in 2021 to be out there commenting on this coronavirus saying, I would do this too. I agree with this. This is my policy. You know, take ownership. I mean, why not? Northam's not going to be running again by constitution, by the Virginia constitution. So get your name out there and start agreeing and disagreeing and start getting your quotes and your publicity out there. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it must be quite a dilemma for them, although some of these folks were thought that they were going to announce before the session started in, in December or January, and they didn't do that, or right when it ended, although by the time the session ended, the pandemic was starting to 
take over everybody's attention. But it's it's interesting that you sort of face a dilemma of declaring now when you know you're not going to be the front news story. You might be on the front page, but you're not going to be above the fold, so to speak, to put it in old fogey newspaper terms. And yet, like Laura said, you do get the ball rolling and you start getting things out there, which is traditionally something of an advantage. So it's a complicated choice. It's an interesting situation. Do you get out there and talk about these things from the yeah, standpoint be of being a candidate, be a leader? Or, you know, the other calculation that some of them are probably making is that they are hoping they're sort of gambling, shall we say, that things get better enough that then they can make an announcement in, I don't know, two months or three months, and they can get more media attention. So well, well, it'll say, be a little, it's sort of a political experiment. I know. I, I, I'm i on Jennifer Carol Foy's side of the approach because also everyone's at home right now. When are you going to get that many people in front of the screen on the phone? You know, Right, I, right. But you can't knock on doors, although I, my belief is we're not going to be knocking on doors until there's a vaccine Exactly. And so. I mean, whenever, if people are sitting on their hands purposely waiting, Jennifer Carol Foy will have X amount of months ahead of them that she's already been on people's screens, on their computer screens, yeah. probably doing virtual town halls. I, I just think it's very wise. Um, it's Now, Terry McAuliffe probably is a little bit out of that equation simply because he already has 100% name recognition. Like, you would figure a former governor who was popular and who is literally one of the best fundraisers ever born can probably step into the race a lot later without it affecting him. But certainly yeah. for, the, for the other candidates, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, we'll see. We'll see which one of them has the right strategy yeah. in a year and a half. <laughs> or well, I guess so a year, a year and a quarter for the primary. Our yeah. podcast will hopefully still be up by then. Woo-hoo. Yeah, we'll give you an analysis of it at the time, and whatever happens, I'm sure we will have been right. Yep. So, guys, I have your song of the episode. It is by Eggy E G G Y, and it is called "Figure It Out." That is a single released in 2019. I think you'll like it. I saw them in Richmond pre-pandemic. So, Somebody named Professor Eggy, spelled differently, was the author of the organic chemistry textbook I used in college. All right. <laughs> Probably completely unconnected. Yeah. There you go. Probably his dad. <laughs> it was spelled differently, so just a coincidence. All right, guys. Thanks so much. This is Laura Jackson. And Jonathan Stevens. Of Local Jurisdiction Consulting. Again, this is April 11th, 2020. We hope you have a great day and thanks for tuning in. Please subscribe, share, and, you know, check us out next time. Goodbye. Bye.